welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. My name is John LeBaron. This is E-Commerce Innovators. I am the Chief Revenue Officer here at Pattern, and I am joined today by Brian Nielsen from Chirp. He is the VP of Product, and they are actually a local company next to us here in Lehigh, Utah. So that's very exciting as well. We are not in person today, but still very excited to have a local fan favorite. So Brian, tell us a little bit more about Chirp and about your remit as VP of Product. Great. Yeah. So thanks for having me on, John. Chirp is a health and wellness company. Our goal is to just help people feel good so they can do more. A lot of the emphasis is on that feel good. And and what put us on the map was a product that is called the Chirp Wheel. And pretty much that has been our staple product for as long as I've I've been there. Before that, it was the company was called Plexus. It was called the Plexus Wheel, but that was about four years ago. So the Chirp Wheel, pretty much what it does is it's a foam roller that is specifically designed for your back. It's about five inches wide, so it fits between your shoulder blades and you roll it up and down, pops the heck out of your back, massages your muscles. So especially if you have an office job or anything, you're hunched over all day. It's been killer. So it's been a great experience. We're growing, which has been amazing. We've been on Shark Tank. We were the number two fastest growing company in Utah in 2021, and we were on the Inc. 5000, which is cool. <laughs> a lot of stuff to cover today. That's that's for sure. So one of the interesting things people may not know about you is that you actually joined in a marketing function. So maybe tell us a little bit, you're, you're a pretty young guy, but tell us a little bit about your career thus far, how you kind of came into this organization. Tell us a little bit about where you entered and then we can explore a little bit of this transition from marketing to product. I think that'd be fascinating for the listeners. Yeah, for sure. So... In high school, I had just started up companies. So I've always kind of been into entrepreneurship. I had like a clothing company that I just would just screw around and, and made hoodies, made clothes and, and started selling stuff. So I've, so I've always had the entrepreneurship bone in my body. Love the startup culture, love the hustle and the freedom that, that it brings. So I ended up going to college, got a degree in business, got a dual emphasis in marketing and finance, which is really weird. It's a weird thing to do. Usually they're not the same person that does these things. Anyways, left school, went and worked at an insurance company and got really into analytics and data and like coding and VBA on Excel. And I just loved it. And just the doors that it opened and, and it, it helped you see a picture that wasn't just like, oh, cool shoes or cool design or cool this. Right. Like you own everything when you have a lot of data. And so I was working there for a couple of years. Then I had one of my best friends, his brother, who is Tate Stock, who owns Chirp. His brother had this product. It was this yoga wheel thing. And he wanted to really start making it go bigger. Up to that point, he just used mostly freelance people. And so he needed someone to help build out the marketing team. And I raised my hand and was hired on as the first, I guess, official salaried employee there. And to help build out the marketing team. So that was about four years ago. Um, and in that time, we transitioned from the company being called Plexus to the company being called Chirp to launching a Kickstarter and doing about 2.1 million on Kickstarter and Indiegogo to appearing on Shark Tank, weathering the COVID storm, but being successful 
through the storm of last year, June 17th, where all D2C companies just got wrecked a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been with it uh, pretty soon after it really started getting up and going. And I've been able to build out the marketing team here. The marketing team has just been fantastic. A lot of really creative people. It's been really fun. It's been a fun ride. Oh, man. That's that's such a blast. That's so great. Well, let's just start back at the idea of kind of where you grew up, this intersection of finance and marketing. I think that's a really interesting, like, how did that kind of come together? What were your passions? How did you kind of discover that path? And how has it kind of played out for you personally? In college, you really don't know very much. Yeah. Unless you're like Mark Zuckerberg, then you know so much. But most of us (laughs) humans, we don't. So I just knew that I wanted to go to school for business management because if you manage and you're in business, you make a lot of money. (laughs) In marketing, I knew that I I was creative. I had taught myself how to do graphic design. I thought I knew how to do ads pretty well. And then one of my buddies had said that the most important class he ever took at BYU-Idaho was like an advanced investments class in the finance emphasis. He's like, if, if that was the only class I ever took, like your, your college degree is worthless if you don't take that class. And so I was like, oh, well, advanced investments, like investors are rich too. Like I want to take, I take that. <laughs> Anyways, I went there, pleaded with the teacher to let me in because I, I was not a finance person and I hadn't taken the beginner class. He ended up letting me in. And in that class, like he, he worked on wall street and he is a killer. He's awesome. His name is Ken Galbraith. Galbraith is his last name. Brother was his first name when I was nice. there. Uh, <laughs> so, and pretty much right away in that class, we started like coding VBA, which if you don't know what that is, that's like not the cool kind of coding. That's not like your front end, like making things beautiful. That's, it's that's nerdy like, accounting finance coding. Yeah. Right <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is sweet. Like I can make it like pull data from the stock market and send me a text message when I should buy stuff. And like, Robin Hood had just come out. So it's like, what's the point of this? Like, what, <laughs> what am I doing? But still super cool. And, and I just learned that like, wow, like there's power in this. Like the things I'm making in, in school right now, these aren't super powerful, but there's power in it. So then when I went to the insurance company as a marketing and finance intern, they created the position for me because wow. that doesn't yeah. exist. I just started like being like, okay, cool. Like I can think creatively like as a marketer, but now I'm equipped with like, the weapon of I know VBA and I understand analytics. And and that just was really cool and, and something that didn't exist too often. Like to find like a creative person that also understands analytics is not like super, super common. It's getting a lot more common, which is dope. And that's why everything I think everything's really growing. So that's kind of how I got there. That's amazing. About a a decade ago I was in a another amazing class at business school mm-hmm. and I don't actually remember what the name of it was, but it was like advanced decision models and technology or something crazy like that. But there was this German professor from McKinsey had spent a whole, you know, forever in, in McKinsey. And then he became a business school professor. He's now leading like advertising economics at Amazon, like just like this wonder, wonder kind, kind of guy. But um, he's really smart. And he was saying, and the same sort of like class that I learned so much from, and probably one of my favorite classes actually in all of business school. But he was saying something to the effect of, you know, back in the 1950s, finance was actually this weird spot where kind of like more creative people went and more like 
subjective thinkers and these almost like artists went. It was not like a a hard science, like, you know, accounting or like finances today, obviously. But he said over the years, it kind of, you know, more math people came into finance and, and, you know, more, more, you know, quant jocks, obviously with, with the stock market, you know, rise, especially in the eighties, et cetera. And certainly the rise of algorithmic trading and all these other kind of innovations within that field. He's like, it, it became much more kind of quantitatively grounded, but it didn't start that way. And he said, marketing is actually undergoing that same transition. And again, this is 10 years ago, but he said, you know, it used to be this enclave for super esoteric, creative people. And yeah. it's drawing, I think he said, you know, most people coming into tech marketing today, actually the number, and he had like a really cool histogram of engineering uh, or of degrees, et cetera. And he's like, you know, it's engineering, it's mathematicians. He's like the most popular majors by those going into marketing today. And it wasn't like liberal arts uh, sort of stuff or English or, or advertising majors or something like that. It was actually pretty hardcore, you know, statistics majors and finance majors and mathematics majors going into marketing. So he said, you're going to, you're going to see this similar kind of undulation in the field and evolution as it becomes more grounded in these, you know, quantitative principles. So I thought it was pretty, pretty interesting and, and pretty also fascinating to see how it's come to fruition over the years. And it sounds like uh, you were one of those folks that, you know, kind of made it into marketing with more of a yeah. quantitative background. I think that's, that's great. Yeah. I, I think, I think we're, you're, you're going to see it grow as well. Like even with, I don't know, do you think the emergence of so many people coding yeah. Like learning how to code. Cause again, that teaches you how to think. And like, sure. that's when you get dangerous is you're like, okay, if then, and like dependence and like all this stuff, like, sure. you think that that is, is playing a role in, in the growth, everything of how marketing is trend. Like there's so much overlap in all these things now. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's that. I think the other big confluence that's happening is data. It just didn't it used to be a lot of really meaningful data in marketing in the way that there is today. Yeah. I mean, for sure, there were like crazy, you know, distributor data that would, feeds that would come in from retailers and right. in areas like that, especially kind of in our world. But, you know, I grew up in why my dad ran an ad agency for 30 years. It was like billboards. He grew up in like the heyday of just spend money. And it's like, that was, <laughs> that was the sign of success of how much money you spent, not actually what you made out of it. And I remember having a similar kind of reflection on my own career before going to business school, being like, I don't think this is going to last. Like at some point, people are going to want to know what they got out of this. And my career, you know, moved from highly kind of creative in the advertising as a writer space into progressively more disciplined, quantitative kind of spaces of demand generation or direct response. And then ultimately into, you know, kind of full-blown, you know, statistical and quantitative marketing. So I think there were always there was always room for kind of quantitative marketers back in the day in terms of pricing analytics or market segmentation or whatever you know price elasticity of demand. But you know, with the man, it's just influx of so much data on social platforms, on advertising platforms, on first party, third party, um, it's it's pretty crazy. And then e-commerce obviously is at like at the head or right, in, right at the head of all of that stuff to be able to really make meaningful conclusions. And I think there's still, for sure, a place around brand, around positioning, around you know customer experience, kind of what I would call more like the softer skills or creative side of marketing. But increasingly, 
when I'm hiring marketers, I I often look for that quantitative skill set. And you're right, like the STEM kind of background that many folks have nowadays of being able to code and write these things. I mean, it's crazy. Like my RevOps team today, I've got people coding in Python, scraping a ton of data from different websites. Like it truly is the backbone of so many insights that we're able to provide back to brands. So yeah, not to go on too much of a tangent or a detour, but it it really is this really interesting. On one of our previous podcasts with Tom Shoes, we talked about this kind of evolution because he's now been in seed as a marketer for, I don't know, 30 years or something crazy. Right. And he's kind of seen that whole transition happen as well. And, and it is crazy, like, especially the younger generation, Gen Z is coming in and, and they're bringing skills to the table, either by virtue of just growing up in that world or because they truly studied in those disciplines, stuff to kind of blow your mind. And don't cut yourself short, man. I mean, I think, or sell yourself short. I think, you know, VBA wizards have their own level of, uh, yeah, they, <laughs> they're, well, they they're accepted as profits sometimes in their <laughs> own world. <laughs> in their own land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're great. I don't, I've forgotten how to do VBA. I'm, I'm worthless. <laughs> I'm just a washed up VBA wizard. Yeah. <laughs> you, you retire. Python <laughs> yeah. scripts pretty soon. Okay. So, so tell us, maybe let's double click before we move into the product because the marketing, I mean, you really actually were there during some pretty fascinating times. Oh, yeah. How active were you involved in the evolution of the brand from Plexus to Chirp? Was that like your brainchild? Did you kind of come in more the tail end of it? Did you lead the charge? Like help us understand what that looked like. So I came on, I remember I was fishing actually, and I was on the phone with, with Tate and he, he texted me. He's like, hey, what do you think about like the name Chirp? Like, wow. I think like that's going to be a cool name. And I hadn't even accepted the position yet. I was like, yeah, like sounds good. And people are like, why is it called Chirp? Well, because it's hard to name a company because every other name is taken and it's totally <laughs> like it's just hard. Okay. So I came on there and before I got there, they had used original videographers that worked at purple to film like a hero style video to kind of make yeah. it silly. So there had been kind of some of the like silliness aspect and that was on what was called the original plexus wheel. So there had been kind of like a silliness aspect to start developing the brand of like, hey, it's back pain, but not like just for old people that back pain, like I don't want to associate myself with that, but like back pain and making it cool. So there was already steps to that. But then coming on, it was really just like sales weren't like anything crazy by any means. And so we just kind of had to start from there of taking like, okay, cool. Like people have back pain, like what do we need to do? So it was really like, when I started, it was me and another guy who was running ads. And I didn't know Facebook ads at the time. I, I still thought that I knew how to make ads because I was creative. So we're just like, okay, well, people need to learn about the thing. So we just kind of started making videos, like instructing people how to use the video. And then I just started thinking like, hey, look, let's just try to make up our own ads. Like they're not going to look like the one that the people from Purple made because right. we don't have like that tens of thousands of dollars to do it. Like, let's just start making our own stuff, like stuff that I think would be funny. And so then we just started making stuff. And there was a phone call. I feel like this is the only thing I ever say on the podcast. And people are like, if they've heard me once, they've heard me every time. <laughs> they, uh, so there was a time where I was like, okay, I got to learn how to sell stuff because I've never really sold something like on an app. And so I called my mom and was like, hey, mom, like, I'm trying to make an ad for this wheel. Like, can I, can you help me? She's like, yeah, sure, honey. And I'm like, okay, well, do you want to buy this chirp wheel? And she's like, sure, honey. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't even know what it is, mom. Like, don't say you're going to buy it. Like, 
do you want to buy it? She's like, okay, well, what is it? And so like, I wrote down the question, like, what is it? And then I was like, oh, it's a trip wheel. Like it helps with your back pain. And she's like, oh, like, how does it help with your back pain? I'm like, okay, sweet. Like it's five inches wide. It does this. And so like, I went down the list until I sold my mom. And so like, it was like inventing the customer journey funnel on a phone call with my mom, which is really important. Like that's the benefit of you need to talk to your customers. Like you can think what you're selling them is great and you can think you know the messaging, but until you actually talk to them, until you actually test it, you don't really know. And so that was like the basis. Like we wrote that out and we had our video guy and we're like, hey, like let's just film like B-roll and then like just put this text over it. And immediately like that started outperforming the stuff that the purple video, the purple guys filmed, like the high quality thing on Facebook. And we're like, dang, like this is crazy. Like maybe we actually know how to write ads and maybe now we can actually do this. So then it, then it was cool because then we just got to be creative and, and fun and silly with it. And so then just like video after video after video, like we just kept making these ads that just started killing it on Facebook. And then there was a little while where our Facebook wasn't great. We had outsourced it to some agency guy who owned a Tesla. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you had to throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> Screw that guy, man. He's living my dream and he's not even good at buying ads. And it wasn't doing really good. And I being just the cocky, overconfident person that I am, I was like, hey, like, let me try. So in the background, I was spending like 50 bucks a day on Facebook. What if I'm going to run this ad to this subset group of people to this and this and this? Because I'd see them doing things and I'd be like, okay, cool. The data is telling us to do this. But then that wouldn't happen. And I'd get really frustrated. And I was like, what the heck? Like, it's easy. Like, just read the data and do the thing. And then make a video that talks to that group of people. And so I just kind of started doing that, my own little thing. And my $50 a day started growing to like $500 a day. Of it. And then finally, it gets to like October. And we're, we're like, hey, just like, we're going to fire this guy. Like, he's not doing anything. And so we let him go, which is pretty spooky because that's right before the most important part of the year for a DTC company, right before Black Friday. And so then I'm just like, okay, well, I'm just going to hail Mary and just see if my little tests actually work. And then it did. And everything just clicked and it scaled. And all of a sudden, I'm spending like 600 grand a month, like wow. just learning how to do it. And so that was at the end of 2019. And so I managed the ads, Distant House, because our team wasn't huge. We had a big creative team. And so like that was really our kind of a bread and butter. We, we hadn't really done tons of ads, but we had a big creative team and big like we had two videographers and two graphic designers and social media person so i mean big for us big for when it started with yeah yeah and yeah we just ran it and then finally i i passed the ads off to a buddy of mine in like mid or late 2020 yeah so yeah yeah oh my gosh that's amazing yeah it's great a lot of failure in between like that sounds really successful and again anything said on any podcast ever like People are going to act like, oh, that's doctrine. Like, I should cop. Like, no. Like, it depends on how big your business is. Depends on the timing. Depends on the product. Like, there's so much dependence. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How much of your finance background and everything we just talked about earlier kind of came into play there? Seems like a lot in terms of that. If then, in terms of the quantitative, in terms of like the logical progression, like walk us through some of that. Yeah. So there's a couple things that really helped. One was, I'd say two most important classes I took in college. One was, it was like an advanced English class, like my sophomore year. But in that class, they taught about critical thinking and just the ability to think critically. And if you don't like that, that's just asking why and and trying to figure things out and not just taking 
things you're told and being like accepting it, but asking why and really trying to figure figure that out. So thinking creatively. Yeah, totally. uh, so that was super helpful along with the advanced investments classes being like data. So if you can have data and actually think past just the numbers of what they are, then you can be really successful. So what I did when I started running the Facebook ads was it was hard to understand like, okay, what's a good ROAS or return on ad spend? Yeah, yeah. Like, is it a 1X? Is it a 2X? Is it a 5X? Like, there's some crazy people out there. The guy with the Tesla is saying that he can give me like a 9X ROAS. So like, why don't I go with him? Which is a whole different story of my strong opinions on people that do freelance stuff like that. So what I did was I just kind of set up a matrix. And on the matrix was the ROAS that we're getting and the amount of spend that we've spent. Yeah. Because anyone like right now, we're getting like a 9x ROAS on some things with yeah. not a lot of spend. But the people talk about the 9x ROAS and it freaks everyone out and stresses everyone out. I had the matrix on one, it was the ROAS and the other one was the spend. And then I had inputted on another sheet. Yeah, another tab of the sheet. Okay, let's look at our fixed costs. Like, what do I have to get? On it, it was like, it made this curve of like, okay, Brian, like, you have to either get this ROAS at this spend or whatever, but it, it showed, it gave me some flexibility. So it wasn't just like, Hey, like we need a three X ROAS out of you. Yeah. Then yeah. I could be like, Hey, well, what if we get a 2.5 ROAS, but I ROAS, but I spend $3 million. Totally. It's like, yeah, that's actually, that's acceptable. So yeah. it just made it so that I didn't really have to play within like the bounds of like one thing, but I could, I could go all the way along that profitability matrix. So that really helped. And then the other side, so that's just kind of pulling the levers, running ads. On the other side, actually creating the ads, just looking around and seeing, okay, what ads are running well from other companies? What organic content is running well from creators? And how do we combine those things with the right messaging to the right person at the right time? Like anyone can be the right person, but if it's not the right time, then you screwed up. So yeah, it it was really just doing that and and being creative. Honestly, I think if you're creative, and you can think like critically, like you're unstoppable. You can you can really do anything you want. Which... I love it, I, man. There's so much to kind of learn from that. Did you did you just kind of create some of those yourself? Did you surround yourself and kind of get tips? Did you research online? Was it just kind of more intuitive? You felt your way through. Like, I mean, there's nothing. No one ever does anything alone. You'll never be successful alone. And so a lot of it was just kind of going off gut feel. And there's kind of a joke in the office of like. Is it on brand? Like, how do we get to this brand? And they're like, oh, that's like Brian's personality. Like, that's yeah, just yeah. Brand. <laughs> it's like, if Brian's like, yeah, cool. But at the same time, like half of those things, like I, I would just bounce ideas off people or I'd have a really strong opinion and start going down somewhere. And then people would be like, hey, like you should tweak this and this and this and this. And, and then it becomes successful. But there's a lot of stuff like the bubble wrap test is kind of a more famous thing. That was Tate had been like, hey, like we need a test like the purple hat like the egg drop test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, like sick. <laughs> I'm just like hungry. And like, this, this was early on. I was like the only marketing person. Like, yeah, sick, dude. Cool. And so I just spent, like we were up in this, like not the greatest like building in the world, like above like a warehouse and some dinky office space. And I'm just like sitting in the corner, like fiddling with things. Like, okay, what if I tie ropes together and we roll the wheel over it and it shows like muscle knots, but it's rope knots. Like, would that get, like whatever. And so like, I just spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about that and thinking of the, the science behind it. Like, I'm oddly really into the science behind these things. On a side note, I wanted to be an engineer when I grew up. Yeah. 
but I wasn't good at math. And my mom said, Brian, you're not good enough at math to be an engineer. <laughs> that's where, what, I don't know. Maybe that's a blessing. My mom yeah. just be real with me. But so, I mean, that science, like I, I, I love it. I'm just not good at the math. And so just thinking of that and being like, okay, like, oh, what if we dealt with surface area? Because uh, that's really what the science is behind the wheel. And I like, what's a cool way that we can link surface area to something visual that is also not like boring visuals you see in a science class, but like, it's fun to watch. It's like yeah. bubble wrap. Like people love popping bubble wrap. People love a big funny guy in bubble wrap and people are like, let's just try that and see if it works. And so we just spent like $200 maybe on that video. And then that, it just went, it blew up. Bubble wrap. Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, that, that just happened kind of over and over like that where we have an idea and we just all kind of throw it back and forth. And a lot of it would be like gut intuition and just, going for it but i mean honestly i think gut intuition is just based on data that you have seen and internalized and forgotten where it came from and that is what your gut is and so people that have a good gut it's because they've experienced a lot of things before and that's why you trust them and so cool i love it yeah and that kind of paved the way that idea for your I don't want to call it shtick, but basically like your value prop or, or your approach on Shark Tank, right? So how involved were you with that? And, you know, obviously that was pretty transformative in a way, I guess, for the company. You'd already had some level of success, obviously, and, and movement. But what did that do for the brand? Whose idea was it? You know, what, uh, what you see on TV is obviously not what happens behind the scenes. And I don't know how much you can talk about everything. But uh, what, yeah, I think listeners would be curious about that experience. Yeah, so Tate and Clayton, Clayton is the guy in the bubble wrap suit. They went to Shark Tank during COVID and uh, they were like stuck in the hotel like for seven days before like math, whenever everyone had to like quarantine forever. So Tate uh, was, yeah, and poor guy. He had to like talk like with mask face and everything. Like, poor guy, it was too bad. But they just did that because that was, I mean, that was the best performing ad we had. And it was fun to look at and it makes great TV. And Clayton's a really, like, he's got a big personality. And, and I, I guess you're right. I didn't really think about it until now. You just said it, how it just kind of paved the way. But like before, we would really just talk about stretching your back and like relieving back pain through massaging muscles. But that bubble wrap thing and a lot of the comments we've seen from it is like, wow, it gives me so many pops in my back. And like, that's actually a pretty dang big reason why people want it is because they're like, I just need someone to pop my back. Yeah, we didn't really have pop messaging before that literal yeah. pop messaging. So I guess, I guess you're right. I didn't, I didn't even think about that until now. But yeah, it did. I mean, and obviously we do now because it's just naturally progressed that way. But I didn't think of, I guess, the bubble wrap thing as being that. But yeah. yeah. So the experience there, um, I think you guys did accept some level of investment. I don't know about how much that actually kind of works, whatever, but like, yeah. did it fundamentally kind of change the trajectory of anything? Did it get you more exposure that you wouldn't have? What did you see happen to your CPCs, your CPAs, or your, your traffic to the site? Like as a marketer, you kind of had a front row to all of that. For sure. Yeah. So I think like the most valuable revenue to any company is like organic revenue. Like that is what you yeah. dream about. And um, some of it you can get by running ads and just the overflow of people talking about, hey, did you see that ad on Facebook? Great. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shark Tank, which yeah, everything was perfect. Like people had been stuck in their house 
for a year. It is around like Black Friday. It would happen. It aired on like Halloween. Wow. And the visuals were great. And all the sharks wanted a piece of it. And there, there was proof in the pudding, like, Hey, they have a lot of sales. Like this was the biggest on air, whatever deal in yeah. history of Shark Tank to that point. And, um, so I remember actually I was at a Halloween party at my house when it aired and we're, I was looking on Shopify. So anyone that has the Shopify app on their phone <laughs> and I'm just like, Man, what a buzzkill. You're, you're at your own party and you're looking at Shopify in the back. I, I know. <laughs> I like know. a I mask on. So no one actually. <laughs> Yeah, everyone here. They're like, whatever, it's company shark thing. So I'm just like looking at sales for the day and I'm like, okay, when is it gonna hit? When is it gonna hit? And all of a sudden, like I pull it out and sales like it looked like dropped to zero for the whole day. And there was just a little bar. And I was yeah. like, Oh my gosh, like something there's an error going on and yeah. shark tank is going on. And so then I opened up my on my computer and I see that like the however many tens of thousands of dollars we had done an hour to that point were just dwarfed. The baseline. By, yeah, just dwarfed by like a $600,000 hour that ha- like happened. And so it was crazy. I mean, it, it was it was awesome. We still like we have post-purchase surveys of, that we've had to get more into since the whole tracking debacle sure. last year. Yeah, yeah. That we still like there's still people on there that are saying like, oh, I saw, saw this on Shark Tank. And so that has been like one of the biggest uh, things that has happened to us. And that's not even like... That's not something you can really control. So I can't come on here and be like, oh, we were so smart. We went on Shark Tank. Like, yeah, yeah. Shark Tank reached out to us. And like, if so, if you can get on Shark Tank, I highly recommend that thing. Yeah. But the amount of organic revenue that happened from that was amazing. But it does go and it kind of serves as like a, as a testament of the product's good. You just got to get it in front of eyeballs. And the name of the game is getting it in front of the best eyeballs at the lowest price. And that's all we're playing now is okay where can we get better eyeballs because the product obviously works and so whether that's retail whether whatever that is it's yeah well it brings up such an important phenomenon and i feel like it in utah we're at the heart of like whatever direct selling companies and things yeah. like that but there is there's so much value from like the endorsement right and mm-hmm. i think one of the innovations of e-commerce really was like the rating system right and this like collective feedback and crowdsource yeah. sort of like is it a good product is it not mm-hmm. And I think we're kind of like biologically wired that way to like, you know, understand if the water is safe to drink, if there's a crocodile in there. And you're like, you know, like we're all gazelles trying to go up and like get a gut check to see if this thing's going to be good or bad. But man, there's so much value in, in some of these newer paradigms like Shark Tank's not new, but it, it is kind of one of the newer genres of like, you know, how do you get validation? How do you get social proof in a different way than just like these reviews that now almost feel hacked or, or gamed and you almost yeah. don't check, you don't trust the reviews, uh, even on Amazon or, or some of these other right. DC sites, right? There's all these weird negative incentives and feedback loops. It's really interesting. And honestly, maybe this is a proof point, like since our last conversation, we, we kind of met and, you know, kind of had a conversation whether or not to do this podcast. And, um, I went and I bought a shirt for my wife. Like, you know, I never oh. actually bought one before. And I uh-huh. went through the whole unboxing experience. Great job on that. And she's using the product and I'm using the product. So, but again, it's like, you know, maybe I'm a late adopter here, but it's like either way, that social validation, that proof, and how do you kind of capitalize on that? And I think we've gone through, at least in the US, fits and starts of social commerce and, you mm-hmm. know, click to know and all these other kind of like the paradigms. But, you know, a lot of what I look at in terms of like a harbinger to come 
or you know, canary in the coal mine, whatever metaphor you want to use is, is China, right? And so much, like hundreds of billions of dollars of social commerce flowing through all of their different apps today. And I don't think it's really like caught on yet. Like Google has really struggled on that front, right? Well, they've, they've struggled with their whole social strategy, right? But even Facebook marketplaces and some of these other areas, like they haven't really figured out how to do it you know, Snap early days, right? For sure. TikTok, I think I was talking to someone else the other day. I think they, there's already been like $6 billion just going through through, through TikTok. So wow. uh, but they haven't really figured out the platform yet, how to make it, you know, open and, and accessible to everyone and advertisers and, and influencers and micro influencers and all these other pieces. I mean, before we move on to the products, how are you guys thinking about that? How are you thinking about social proof validation? Obviously video, obviously you're doing some level of advertising and social media, Obviously, these other areas like Shark Tank, how else have you guys thought about getting that in the hands of customers and, and helping them kind of trust it and, and feel like it's a legit kind of product? Yeah, it, it's hard to do more than like what, what you have and what exists. Like you have reviews on your site. You try to have unbiased reviews. You try to work with influencers because they have some form of pull over these people. You hope that you get organic influencers, people that are like, oh, I'm just going to review this because I'm curious about it. You hope that you get that word of mouth and you try to incentivize that word of mouth. And so I think the strategy, which is kind of a weird strategic move, is if you make a good product, which again, marketing is half, it's only half the battle. Like there's no comp company that I think is just successful on marketing alone. Yeah. Like yeah. to say that is naive. And so product, the product has to be good. And so if I can get you the product and I can get you to like the product, then you go and you tell other people. So one, make a good product. Two, if the brand is cool as well, then it provides like more, you're more stoked to talk about the brand when someone uses your thing. Cause you're like, Hey, they're actually pretty cool. Like check out this video. It's funny. Yeah. Check out the Karen video or like a troll, whatever it is. And so working with brand plays, brand activations, uh, and then not banking on that sounds not scientific, but banking on that the product does what it's supposed to do and people talk about it. That is the biggest thing outside of just like standard, like, okay, you got your reviews, you got your influencers, you got your organic stuff, you got your PR, you got all that stuff. But other than that, I, I think that's why it's really important to have a strong brand, which is something we've been working on. We're, we're not there yet. I mean, I think we're still just a wheel company to pretty much everyone, but that's what needs to happen. I think that's what most companies need to happen, which again, there's a time and place for that. If you start trying to just be brand right from the beginning, you're not going to get sales. So yeah. th there's a time and place for everything. And if you try to jump on the brand bandwagon too late, you're not going to be as relevant and you're not going to be able to last. So you got to time it right. Well, and it's so important too, because and I think we might've chatted about this earlier too, like um, the innovation pace that you have to kind of keep up with and uh -huh. the brand level kind of gives you some level of protection on that if you really can build a strong brand and a real customer kind of connection a little bit harder in a non-consumable space right and how many wheels people ultimately kind of buy but it's you've got to have a lot of competitors flooding the market a lot of fake stuff coming through a lot of people you know and and so if you're i don't know if you have patents or you know the science in there and being first to market only kind of get you so far because you're yeah. constantly like being chased down by competitive folks, whether they're, you know, bidding on your own search terms or on your own, you're conquesting you or just going to, you know, China and find a cheaper product that it maybe is inferior, but it's hard to know if you don't have that brand exactly. for customers to know. So 
the reviews actually do provide some level of a motor and insulation because that does, even if it's delayed right. over time, give you that sense of like, oh, I guess I'd better just get the one that's mostly the same price and uh, and has way more reviews and way higher quality reviews, right? But right. I don't know, any, anything on that end that you would be helpful to walk through? In terms of product innovation? Well, just in terms of like how you guys have, have dealt with, and maybe this is a good segue to start to think through your transition over to product because yeah. as the... I mean, you're kind of like a market leader in a way, right? You kind of invented right. the kind of category or right. at least, uh, you know, we're one of the pioneers there. So how have you dealt with the kind of Amazon effect, I'll call it that, of people yeah. coming, ripping off the idea, trying to source it cheaper, trying to, you know, put their own different color or different flavor on it yeah. to try to get in there? How, how have you dealt with that from a brand defense strategy as well as a product innovation strategy? Quite candidly, it's been difficult. So we have pricing differentiation on Amazon to, this is a little bit backwards thinking, but we just have different prices on Amazon to try to incentivize people to come onto our website where we offer a different, like you buy the three wheels and you get a free blank when you buy the wheels on our website to keep away from Amazon. Because on Amazon, you go on there, we were in the uh, yoga category for a while in the yoga wheels and there's tons of yoga wheels, tons of tons. None of them have the spinal canal or the amount of padding that we have. But even then, like to someone who doesn't care or know, really, they're like, no, whatever, like that's cheap fur and it's it's black, which is cool. Like that's a cool color. So we try to incentivize with pricing as well as we've thought about kind of like the the P&G model of what if we just came out with, like we just compete with ourselves. Like they don't have to buy a chirp wheel, but we own all the other brands. So we'll just come out with brands that are, similar similar product similar price and we just we push everyone else out we just put we use what our competency core competency is of being good marketers and being good at building and being creative and we just put a little bit more pizzazz than all the like the knockoff like chinese brands are on there and then we just push all of them out and so even though those products are bad we own them all so it doesn't really matter i mean there's several there's tons there's a lot of companies that do that Um, especially when it's in such like a niche like yoga wheel industry we've also moved from the yoga category on amazon to the foam roller category on amazon and it's been cool as we have like revenue wise we are dominating the foam roller category yeah which like that's a big that's honestly a big category bigger than i think most people think but so that that's helped us that's helped us a little as well but still i mean people are going to come out like to think that people aren't going to try to knock your product off or get closer and closer to what you made like that's silly did that reclassification happen because of something you did on your end to just purposefully go in and yeah. try to reclassify or did Amazon prompt it at all? No, no. We we had seen that the foam roller area was bigger, had a bigger opportunity for yeah. us. And it was more competitive because a lot of our a lot of our messaging is why a chirp wheel is better than a foam roller. And yeah. so we're like, okay, let's compete with someone that we know it's going to be like, oh, do I want to roll my back on that tube or do I want to roll it on a chirp wheel that's perfect? Yeah, yeah. Like, so we wanted to be right next to someone that they could make an instant differentiation and be like, wow, that's better than this. So I love that. I mean, from a BSR perspective or bestseller rank perspective on Amazon too, and, and being able to quant- you know, get the badges and all this other stuff across those keywords yeah. and truly kind of compete with something we we like to refer to as the digital shelf, like who truly is in your core competitive yeah. set across myriad keywords and triangulate all that data into that digital shelf and understand really like who is winning on keywords you're not, that, that really is your closest competitor by 
you know, the A9 algorithm and then yeah. understanding where you you have an opportunity to conquest or extend the lead, um, especially in those subcategory areas and be able to understand like the growth rates by category too. So yeah, it sounds like a lot of that has uh, prevailed in, in the way you've approached it and thought about it too. Well, Maybe I know I spent a ton, way more than time than I anticipated on marketing. Um, I mean, your title is VP of product, but it's just obviously it's like the hammer I want to hit every nail with is marketing. <laughs> but right. uh, hey, I mean, I've only I don't I I'm much more interesting to talk about marketing with than product at this point. <laughs> okay, well we got some time. Tell us a little bit about the world today. What prompted the migration from or evolution, however you want to think about it, from marketing over to product. Uh, what's worked out, what hasn't so far. I know it's kind of early days, but but tell us more about that. Uh, well, I was just really bad at marketing. So they... <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> so we've never really had like a product team. Like it's always been like, Tate's always kind of been, the, the owner has been like dabbled in it a little yeah. bit, but like he has so much other stuff going on. Like he doesn't have time to really spend a lot of time on it. And so the whole time... I've been here. We've never had like a product team any bigger than like a single person. Wow. And so the switch was just, Hey, Brian, like go build up the product team. And Tate just knows that I guess I'm, I'm creative and I work hard and just to see what we can do to shake things up. But it, it's actually been cool so far. We've been uh, using a method called design thinking, which is popular at Stanford. Are you familiar with design thinking at all? Yeah. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Which has been cool. I, I learned about it a little bit in college, but every time I tried to implement it, it just kind of ended up turning into more of like a hippie philosophy rather than like a real way to develop <laughs> products. Because <laughs> it's just like, first you start out with empathizing with the person. It's like, okay, well, like that's hard. Like, do, shouldn't I like kind of steer the direction where it's going? And what's cool about the design thinking process now that we're really starting to implement it is anywhere you start. So design thinking, for anyone that doesn't know, it starts out with empathizing with the customer. Then you define the problem. You define the customer. Then you brainstorm or ideate. You start thinking of ideas to solve the problem. Then you prototype for what what you pretty much physically make or digitally make that prototype or that ideation. And then you test it. And you repeat any at any point of those steps. You could go from ideation back to empathizing and be like, Hey, we think this is a good idea, but did we hear this customer, right? You go back and talk to the customer. So what's cool about the process. And I think honestly, a lot of people do it naturally, but they just don't have it organized. What's cool about the process is, is you really end up developing products that people like, and it prevents you prevents you. We haven't come out with anything yet as of when I've been there, but it prevents you from coming out with products that are a flop because you're like, no, like, I empathized, I, I defined who it is, I've tested it. Like we we have cold hard data saying this is a good product. And then you just launch it and you can scale it. And it makes it a lot easier on the marketing team. So coming from the marketing team, if you're just given a product and you're like, hey man, like this like ball vibrates, go sell it. And it's like, whoa, what? Like what? Okay, let me make up a story. Like it was hard enough to come up with a bubble wrap test, and I had a little bit more direction on that. Like coming up with like vibrating ball, like I'm supposed to do that. But when you start with empathizing and defining and all that stuff, then you can go to the, the marketing team and say, Hey, like we've noticed that people over 65 really have this problem because they sit all day and they sit all day because they're watching the game show network. And then it's like, great, sick. Like I can take that and I can make an ad for that person. I'll grab Steve Harvey. I'll grab whoever, like great, <laughs> I, I can figure it out. So yeah, totally. it's been cool. I mean, Again, I think 
like I said before, if you're creative and you work hard, you can do anything. Do I feel more comfortable in marketing? Yeah. And that's probably where I'll end up going back to eventually. But I love creating things and making things work and whatever hat I have to wear to make that happen. That's fine. And as long as you have your fundamentals right, I don't see an issue with it. So Yeah. Well, I love it, man. There, there's so much. I put a high premium on my own career in terms of professional growth and personal growth. And I think wow. these assignments that we get tapped on when I got to pattern, you know, not long after they said we drew on the sales team. And I was like, sounds amazing. The only problem is I've never run a sales team. So I'm going to be a total train wreck. And it's like a terrible idea. But you learn, right? You surround yourself with great people. You kind of figure it out. Yeah. And that design thinking paradigm is, is so great. You know, Pattern acquired a company called Enlisted Design. CEO yeah. Bo Euler has been like won every award in design. The whole agency's won so many awards. I think they're like the number two design agency globally behind Nike. And I learned so much from him and the way he approaches product thinking and design. And it's it's so great. Even at my, you know, in my MBA program, same sort of thing. They had this really great design thinking class. And it was one of those classes that was pretty far afield from the traditional core of an MBA curriculum. But it, I just learned so much. I think that, you know, one of the partners at IDEO was the professor and he, and he came down, you know, from the loop in Chicago and, and would sit down with all and you, and you do these capstone classes, et cetera. So I think there, there absolutely is so much that kind of goes into that. And I honestly, I can't think of a better person to kind of have that leadership um, because you've been so close to the customer from a marketing mm-hmm. perspective. You've seen what's working, you've seen the feedback, you've seen the sentiment, you've seen what works and what doesn't. And to be able to think of how those insights and extreme kind of customer empathy drive innovation in the company or in the business model or in the route to market or whatever you want to think about, I think is very, very powerful. So I think it's a good natural next move and we'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. Appreciate it, man. That's great. <laughs> well, man, we've covered a lot of ground today. I appreciate you you coming on the show and enlightening us and, and telling us some war stories. Anything we did not cover today that you want to kind of come back and think around or, or, or share any further experiences with the listeners today? Not really. I, I Whatever I said, I, sometimes I can come off as prideful of, of things that have gone on. Nothing that I have done could have been done without the team that, yeah. that we had. And, and surrounding yourself with smart people that you trust and, and work hard, like that's, that's the key. And even though like, I know it's really hard for a lot of companies right now because they were banking on Facebook ads and D2C, like that sort of thing. Like the transition next is community and, and doing those soft skills that we talked about really, really well until we can get back to tracking more and more accurately and still using the data, as much data as we can use responsibly because sometimes you can get overwhelmed with data and it clouds the judgment. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a hard journey going forward, but uh, it, it's good and it, it's, not, it's not a bad thing. There's still people that have money. There's still people that want to buy things. So we just got to go about it a little bit of a different way. So yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate it, Brian. It's so great to meet you. Great to learn about your journey. I applaud the success. And absolutely, I mean, it's, it's a team sport, all of this stuff to get done and get across the line. And we're, we're lucky to live in a place and in a time uh, where we can really, you know, instead of spending so much time in the field hunting for stuff, yeah. <laughs> trying to feed, take care of the little ones, it's, uh, we got to live our best life and just kind of grow and, and be, you know, surrounded by so many great people and, and so many great passionate things. So, Anyway, I appreciate you coming on the show today. And again, we'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. We'll look for what's next 
from Chirp. And uh, again, appreciate you coming on the show today. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. All right. Take care.